welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 8. Antigone. Nomos versus Physis. Last time, we looked at the life and works of Sophocles and the other events of his near hundred year span, in particular, the Athenian Golden Age under Pericles and the protracted years of the Peloponnesian War. With that background in mind, we're now going for a deeper dive into some of his plays. As discussed before, the three plays concerned with the Oedipus myth and the ruling family of Thebes were written separately over many years and not in chronological order. As none of the plays they are paired with at first presentation now survive, we can look at them as standalone pieces, so I'll start where Sophocles did, with the last part of the story, Antigone. Although it was the first written of the three Theban plays, it's a play written by a poet in his maturity and with much life experience. Its first performance was placed at 441 BCE and thought to be his 32nd entry into the Dionysia competition, so there's a lot of confidence about the piece and indeed all the surviving works. Structurally, as with other Sophocles plays, Antigone is episodic. A choral ode is followed by a dramatic scene or episode of the story, then an ode, then another scene, then another ode, etc. In fact, The word episode itself is derived from the Greek meaning between odes. So, another theatrical Greek word in everyday use. This pattern, and as we shall see, the comparative brevity of both the odes and the dramatic content, gives the play a very different feel from the works of Aeschylus. This is a real step change, and it's a pity that we don't have any early or middle works by Sophocles, where we might see how that transition in form between the two happened and developed in more detail. For this story in particular, there's a lot of backstory by this point, but Sophocles does not relate it in detail as Aeschylus would have done, but references it briefly and assumes a degree of knowledge from his audience. Unusually, though, the story is not in Homer, and it's assumed that it was created by Sophocles from his own imagination. As the play opens, a fight for the throne of Thebes has just finished. Creon is king, and his nephews, the sons of Oedipus, Polynices and Ectocles, are dead, each slain by the other's hand. Creon had considered Ectocles the true heir, so decrees that he should be buried with full honours while his brother's corpse is left to rot outside the city. Not only is this the fulfilment of an earlier prophecy by Oedipus, but deeply contrary to Greek beliefs about the honour due to the dead, especially due to those who died in battle. The sisters of the dead brothers, Antigone and Ismene, arrive back at the city and, in a dramatic technique that Sophocles often used, their conflicting views on how the dead brothers should be treated are contrasted in sharp relief. Antigone is unflinching in her belief that her dead brothers should be treated equally. As far as she is concerned, the ties of blood override any action taken or belief expressed in life, and it is their duty to give the brothers decent burial. She vows, with passion and the full knowledge that Creon has decreed death to any who attempt this, to see her brother properly interned. Her burning heart is contrasted with Ismene's turning cold at the thought. For Ismene, it's not that she is unsympathetic to the situation, but she is prudent by nature and allows common sense to guide her. The chorus call Antigone a violent woman, meaning perhaps violent of passion as well as action. As Ismene cannot be persuaded to assist, Antigone departs to perform the rituals alone. 
This is pacey stuff compared to Aeschylus. The exchange between the sisters is only 30 lines of dialogue and then only 8 lines of exchange between the chorus and the chorus leader before Creon enters to deliver his decree at first hand. Addressing the chorus playing city elders, he says, Sirs, this vessel of our state, after being tossed on wild waves, has once more been safely steadied by the gods. And you, of all the folk, have been called apart by my summons, because I know, first of all, how true and constant your reverence for the royal power of Laius was. How again, when Oedipus was ruler of our land, and when he had perished, your steadfast loyalty still upheld their children. Since, then, his sons have fallen in one day by twofold doom, each smitten by the other, each stained with a brother's blood, I now possess the throne and all its powers by nearness of kinship to the dead. Not untypically for history plays and tragedies through the centuries, we are at a moment where power is changing hands. In the past, and sometimes in our own times, these are moments of great risk for society generally, and particularly for those in the orbit of power. Whether the system is one of hereditary leadership or by election, the moment of exchange was precarious and a situation that is only complicated if one of the candidates for elevation is weak or very young. And it all makes for good drama. Creon clearly feels the need to establish his legitimacy and combines the argument of both a close blood tie with the brothers, the will of the gods and the need to keep the ship of state running smoothly. He continues, No man can be fully known in soul and spirit and mind until he has been seen versed in rule and law-giving. He's moving quickly to play the statesman and move beyond the moment of exchange. Perhaps this is the reason for his harsh judgment of his errant nephew, but he makes it clear that any breaking of his decree will result in the harshest punishment possible, a common tactic of the new leader trying to enforce a rule from a potentially vulnerable position. We can remember the unflinching narrative of Aegisthus to the chorus when he tries to take control in Agamemnon. Then, quite suddenly, the play takes a slightly comic turn with the entrance of a timid palace guard. This mix of comic in the tragic is common in the works of Sophocles. Although only part of one survives, he was known for writing good satire plays, so clearly he had a talent for the humorous plays as well as the tragic. The guard is very fearful towards Creon because he has to report that Polynices has already been buried. After he has delivered the news and a lengthy response where Creon berates the treachery of his subjects, the following exchange. Guard, may I speak or shall I just turn and go? Creon, don't you realise that even now your voice offends? Guard, does it smart in your ears or in your soul? Creon, and why would you define the seat of my pain? Guard. The offender vexes your mind, ah, but I, your ears. Creon. Ah, you're a born babbler. It's well seen. Guard. Maybe, but never the doer of this deed. Creon. Ha, and more. You would sell your life for silver. Guard. Alas, it's sad, truly, when he who judges should misjudge. Creon. Let your fancy play with judgment as it will, but if you don't show me the doers of these things, you will be the one who suffers for the crime. The exchange is realistic, quick and progresses the plot. We have seen quick-fire exchanges before, think of the royal couple in the Oresteia after Agamemnon arrives at the palace, 
But this is lighter in tone and less portentous, but it still retains a core truth about speaking truth to power. A furious Creon sends the guard off to discover who the culprit is, and after only a short but lyrical choral ode, he returns with the joyful, as he puts it, news, that having uncovered the corpse again and hidden in wait, the guard saw a woman return and rebury it. He presents Antigone as the perpetrator. Creon challenges her, and she immediately admits the offence. Sophocles presents another great contrast here, the male guard fearful of power, and the woman standing up to it, undaunted. There are furious exchanges between Creon and Antigone, but she holds her own against his accusations of treachery, citing the higher laws of the gods and nature that supersede his decrees. Ismene is recalled and also accused. Antigone protests that her sitter is innocent, but Creon is undeterred and both women are led away. He decides that Antigone's fate is to be walled up in a cave with only a little food, which, in his mind, seems to absolve him from murder. He does, however, decide to pardon Ismene. Haman, Creon's son and Antigone's intended husband, enters and respectfully pleads for mercy, pointing out that the death sentence is very unpopular with the people of the town. Creon goes to his default position of accusing disloyalty for any who oppose him. Who is Haman, he says, to tell him how to rule? Haman stands up to him. Our Theban folk, with one voice, deny it. Creon. Shall Thebes prescribe to me how I must rule? Haman. See, there you have spoken like a youth indeed. Creon. Am I to rule this land by the judgment other than mine own? Haman. There is no city which belongs to one man. Creon. Is not the city held to be the rulers? Haman. You would make a good monarch of a desert. It's a pertinent exchange for the contemporary audience. The play was written and performed after the end of the First Peloponnesian War, during a period of relative peace with Sparta, but there had been some unrest in the city. In 444 BCE, Thucydides, probably an ancestor of the famous historian and leader of the conservative group in the city, attempted to dislodge Pericles and the Democrats from power over misuse of funds in ambitious building plans for the city. Pericles countered by offering to pay for much of the work from his own private wealth. The attempt at his removal failed and Pericles' position was secured. In 442 BCE, Thucydides was ostracised. Ostracism was a formal procedure in Athenian democracy, whereby citizens could be voted into a ten-year exile. Each year, citizens were asked if there was anyone they they wished to be ostracised and following the collection of names, a vote was taken. The word ostracise derives from the pieces of broken pottery that were used as the voting tokens, the ostrachia. The ostracism was affected only if there were more than 6,000 votes in favour. If so, then the person had 10 days to leave the city and returned on pain of death. However, there was no loss of status or confiscation of property, so a return without stigma was possible after 10 years, or earlier if the ostracism was revoked by the assembly. Pericles' own father, Xanthippus, among others, was subject to ostracism and returned successfully. More directly, the performance took place only shortly before a military expedition against the island of Samos, so the people were still well aware of the military and political tensions in the system, a system that could have fallen back to oligarchy or even anarchy at any point amidst the power struggles. 
The warning here of the dangers of succumbing to despotic rule may have been a response to specific events, but, more likely, is part of the general and oft-repeated warning by the ancient poets. As the action moves on, Creon denies his son entreaties, and Antigone is informed of of her fate. Stubborn to the end, she's led away. The blind seer Tiresias enters and further pleads for Antigone's life. When Creon berates him as a self-seeking false prophet, Tiresias heaps curses on Creon, predicting a sorry end to the day. For the first time, Creon doubts his actions. Alone with the chorus, who, remember, are playing town elders, who he has already praised for their loyalty to the family, he listens to their advice and decides to relent. Again, it's a quick reversal. In less than a dozen lines, he has the change of heart. Sophocles is happy to keep driving the story along at pace. The exchange ends with... Leader. Go then, and free the maiden from her rocky chamber, and make a tomb for the unburied dead. Creon. And this is your counsel. You would have me yield. Leader. Yes, king, and with all speed, for swift harms from the gods cut short the folly of man. Creon. Army, it's hard, but I resign my cherished resolve. I obey. We will not wage any vain war with destiny. The choral song covers a time-lapse before a messenger arrives to tell how Haman had arrived first at the tomb and, forcing his way in, found Antigone dead by hanging in preference to starvation. It's an act that mirrors the death of her mother, Jocasta. The messenger tells how at the moment of discovery Creon arrived and Haman attempted to stab him, but, failing to land an effective blow, fell on his own sword instead. The chorus exclaim that Creon approaches, carrying his dead son. Woe is me, for the wretched blindness of my counsels. Alas, my son, you have died in your youth by a timeless doom. Woe is me. Your spirit has fled, not by your folly, but by mine own. But things only get worse for Creon. He learns from a messenger that his queen, Eurydice, learning of her son's death, has also killed herself. The play ends with the broken king returning to the palace. Lead me away, I pray you, a rash, foolish man. Oh, my son, it is I that killed you unwittingly, and also my wife, unhappy that I am. I don't know which way I should bend my gaze or where I should seek support. For all is amiss with anything that I touch, and yonder, again, a crushing fate has leapt upon my head and a wise word from the chorus leader to finish. Wisdom is the supreme part of happiness. The reverence towards the gods must be inviolate. Great words of prideful men are ever punished with great blows, and in old age teach the chastened to be wise. Antigone is very much a social drama, where the forces of religion, the state, political power and human emotion are shown to vie for space with each other within the drama. If Creon and Antigone are the extremes, representing the dictates of the state and the overbearing power of human instinct, then Haman shows the middle way by advocating rule by government tempered with mercy. That may be the view closest to Sophocles' own, but he recognises that in life decisions are not so clear-cut. Creon is managing a situation, the transfer of power after a period of civil war, that could blow up at any moment. As the new Tyrannos, it's his role to provide strong leadership that can lead to peace, a peace that can lead to rule by consensus. 
but he has the common Sophoclean character flaw of not thinking through his actions properly before making his decrees. He's quick to judge Ismene and the timid guard. He assumes Antigone and Tiresias are driven by disloyalty to his own position. The heart of the moral dilemma of the play is how far can that descent be allowed to go before it damages civic life as a whole. Both uncle and niece are tragic characters because of the same character flaw. Both are incapable of compromise. And both suffer from the worst of flaws to the Greek mind, hubris, so, however justified the cause, society has a problem with this. The citizens of Thebes may approve of Antigone's reasoning, but they cannot approve of the fact that she carries out the action. And, as we have seen before, the equation in Greek tragedy is circumstance plus action leads to further action equals tragedy. The character of Antigone is not without problems. She's not a straightforward heroine that we can sympathise with without question. She is strident and argumentative, quite shrill at times, even to her own sister. Much as one can admire the respect she wishes to show her dead brother, she does this to the extreme and exclusion of all else. Was Polynices such a paragon that he deserves this degree of respect? Antigone could have made her actions less public and not returned to the grave time and again. She says herself that she would welcome death if it is the price she has to pay. Haman says that he's pleaded with her too, but she's refused his advice. She doesn't have a single word of affection for him in the play, nor him for her. It's hardly endearing, and most significantly, she is fearless in the face of death and happy to proclaim it to anyone who'll listen. Craving martyrdom does not make her a sympathetic character. Her hatred of Creon is obvious from the start, but does he not deserve some respect within the context of this family drama? But if Antigone cannot be played for sympathy, the drama still works precisely because of the clash of these two strong wills. I also find the character of the guard striking. He is perhaps the most realistic person we have come across in Greek tragedy so far. He has more individual character than any messenger, soldier or watchman in Aeschylus. Now, I'm not suggesting he is anywhere close to the Shakespearean comic mechanical, but his speech denotes him clearly being from a different class from the ruling family, and his trepidation at delivering the message he has been unwillingly selected for is borderline comic. There's also some realism in the idea that his expressed concerns for his own safety are a defence mechanism for the common man when faced with power that could literally end your life with a gesture. We're drawn to Antigone as the central character who suffers most. Haman has a much smaller role and his mother, Eurydice, has only a few lines in one scene. But Creon is the main role in terms of stage time, lines of dialogue and character development. His change of heart is too quick to be realistic, but it's development of sorts, whereas Antigone remains unchanged from start to finish. Perhaps the play should be called Creon Tyrannus or Creon Rex. The only way in which Antigone can be considered the central character is that it's her actions that drive the family to the tragedy that has been predicted, and for the Athenian audience, perhaps that is enough. But really, it's the inflexibility of both Antigone and Creon that's the cause of the tragedy. And what a tragedy. At the end, everybody is left dead or broken. The play is much admired for its structure by some critics. As mentioned before, it's compact and the plot driven swiftly. As the play opens, we're already in the heart of the story without preamble. 
There are intimate, homely moments between the two sisters contrasted with the formal scenes with Creon and the city elders. The play builds to the central moment where hope is renewed by Creon's reversal of heart, only to be dashed and dashed again by the news of the subsequent deaths. Although the role of the chorus is reduced compared to what we saw in Aeschylus, the play includes two of the most admired odes in the Sophoclean canon. After the debate between Haman and Creon, the chorus sing of the power of love. Love, unconquered in the fight, love, who makes havoc of wealth, who keeps the vigil on the soft cheek of a maiden. You roam over the sea and among the homes of dwellers in the wilds. No immortal can escape you, nor any man whose life is for a day. And he to whom you have come is mad. The just themselves have their minds warped to you by wrong for their ruin. It's you that has stirred up this present family strife. Victorious is the love-kindling light from the eyes of the fair bride. It is a power enthroned in sway before the eternal laws, for there the goddess Aphrodite is working her unconquerable will. And also perhaps the most poetic ode of all his works. The ode praising human success and ingenuity has no bearing on the action at this point. It's sung between the guard leaving to find the perpetrators of the crime and returning with the news of Antigone's actions. But it stands in its own right as a beautiful affirmation of man's achievements. Wonders are many, and none are more wonderful than man. The power that crosses the white sea, driven by the stormy south wind, making a path under surges that threaten to engulf him. And he works the earth, the eldest of the gods, the immortal, the unwearied, turning the soil with the offspring of horses, as the ploughs go to and fro from year to year. And the light-hearted race of birds, and the tribes of savage beasts, and the scaly fruit of the deep, he snares in meshes of his woven toils, and leads captive, man excellent in wit. And he masters by his arts the beasts whose lair is in the wild, who roam the hills. He tames the horse of shaggy mane, and puts the yoke upon his neck. He tames the tireless mountain bull. And speech, and windswift thought, and all the moods that mould a state, he has taught himself, and how to flee the arrows of the frost, where there is hard lodging under the clear sky, and the arrows of the rushing rain. Yes, he has resource for all. Without resource he meets nothing that must come. Only against death shall he call for aid in vain, and even from baffling maladies he has divide escapes. Cunning beyond fancy's dream is the fertile skill, which brings him now to evil, now to good. When he honours the laws of the land, and the justice, which he has sworn by the gods to uphold, proudly stands his city. And no city has he, who, from his rashness, dwells with sin. Whoever does these things shall never share my home, nor my thoughts. In 5th century BC Athens, the debate dramatised in the play was a familiar one. Indeed, that debate stretched well into the following century as Athenians attempted to define where man-made laws and conventions sat as opposed to natural laws. They knew it as nomos, the man-made rules of society, and physis, the natural or divine law, which should be obeyed in preference to the other. When you stop at a red light or drive on a green, you're obeying nomos. But when you stop because someone suddenly steps out in front of your car in the middle of the road, you're obeying physis. 
Laws were thought to be part of the nomos and arrived at by consensus for the good of society as a whole. The debate begins where these laws are seen to be restricting natural freedoms and rights and therefore infringing on the physis. Philosophers, particularly Plato and his followers, argued that nomos could be based on a process of reasoning that would then result in a proven standard of moral behaviour, which could then be expressed in crafted laws. The debate between the negative and positive views of the law were never completely resolved, but in Antigone we see the extremes. For Creon, nomos is everything, but Antigone is equally stuck in her view, which is that the natural law, her duty to both her dead brothers, overrides the civic laws every time. Physis dictates that she has a duty to bury Polynices. She could never leave him to be eaten by the dogs and vultures, so she chooses religious obedience over civil obedience. She sees herself as a fighter for these freedoms. To Creon, she's an irrational dissenter, whose actions will only lead to civil dissent and unrest, a terrorist in all but name. And two and a half thousand years later, it's a debate that we can still see today, perhaps mostly in the question of how far what we now see as human rights for the individual extend when they bump up against the societal laws designed to serve the good of the whole population. For many, it lacks the religious aspect in our more secular societies, but the discussion over nomos and physis, be that based on beliefs in rules set by a deity or by natural law, is, in effect, still near the heart of that ongoing debate. We don't know if Antigone won a prize at the festival or not, but once revivals were permitted, it was often included in later festivals. Euripides wrote a play of the same name, now lost, and the play has been adapted many times from the Roman period right up to more modern times, notably by Bertolt Brecht in 1948 and by Jean Anouil in his 1943 adaptation, produced under the rigours of Vichy French censorship. It may not give individual actors superb roles to star in, but as a complete piece it holds its place in Greek dramas not only just because it is often presented as the third of the Theban plays, its bigger siblings, Oedipus Tyrannos and Oedipus at Colonus, tend to overshadow Antigone, but if you get the chance I would recommend it as a good introduction to performed Greek drama and a very satisfying watch. Next time, We'll go back to the start of the journey with Antigone's father, Oedipus. It's a dark world of violence and incest, where those human failings that Sophocles so liked to explore are exposed completely. The dilemmas faced, the choices made, are just about extreme as they can get. Based on one of the best-known Greek myths, make sure you come to the next episode with your eyes wide open and make the most of it. After all, you never know when you might feel like gouging them out. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.